Hi there, you're listening to The Hellenistic Age Podcast, Episode 82, Hellenistic Literature, Court Poetry and Propaganda. While the characterization of the starving artist may ring true for many people in both the ancient and modern world, the birth of the Hellenistic period provided another avenue for those looking to achieve fame and fortune. New kingdoms sprung up throughout Alexander's former empire, and the various dynasties sought to attract artists and scholars to their courts. Places like Alexandria and Antioch became the premier destination for poets, as their new paymasters bankrolled grand epics, flattering panegyrics, and various other works of renown. These authors would also redefine the art of poetry, drawing upon the models of those like Homer, Hesiod, and other predecessors to introduce new styles and approaches of their own. In this episode, we will be discussing some of the premier poets of the Hellenistic courts, looking at their careers and some of their surviving works to get a sense of the literary culture of the time. Poets seeking the financial security of monarchs was already a phenomenon of the Greek world prior to the Hellenistic period. Famous Pindar wrote odes in the honor of the kings of Molossia and Kyrene in the 5th century, and the tyrants of Syracuse were equally willing to surround themselves with a cadre of troubadours. The Macedonian court of Philip and Alexander was an attractive destination as well, but the establishment of the successor kingdoms was clearly a marked change in the intensity of this patronage. Abundant wealth and fierce competition meant that these new dynasties were willing to support as many talented individuals as they could. In return for these financial endowments, the monarchs expected to see the production of compositions that either celebrated their achievements or were works of such quality that they acquired a degree of prestige by association, much like a film studio that funds but does not creatively contribute to an award-winning feature. While some rulers earned reputations for being intellectually minded, we cannot attribute this desire solely to an appreciation for the arts. The perception of power was essential to affirming one's identity as an autocrat, and was about as important as military conquests. Victory would be elevated by the odes esteeming the king's bravery in battle, while defeats could be spun as intelligent tactical retreats or brief pauses before an eventual victory. No doubt that many of the poets were genuine in their efforts, and some probably viewed their connection to their benefactors as a convenient working relationship to enable them to craft poetry that would ensure their literary immortality. As we shall see later in this episode, both the Seleucids and Antigonids were associated with a number of famous poets. In terms of scale and documentation, they paled in comparison to the Ptolemaic dynasty, ruling over Egypt from their cultural epicenter of Alexandria. Through their extensive funding of institutions like the Library and Museon, the Alexandrian school, for lack of a better term, would come to dominate the cultural landscape of the Mediterranean world for centuries. The most well-known of the Alexandrian poets, and perhaps of the Hellenistic period as a whole, was Callimachus. He was born in the city of Kyrene in modern Libya during the final years of the 4th century to a prominent local family, his grandfather having served as a general while his father was a grammarian. Much of his early career would have been under the reign of Magas, the stepbrother of Ptolemy II Philadelphus, who seized control of Kyrene and declared independence from Egypt by 276, though he was the de facto king since at least 300. Magas sought to turn the city into his own personal capital, and Callimachus was likely one of the intellectuals patronized at his court. 
Rather than writing elegies about the king, the most prominent star of his early works was Magus' daughter, Berenike II Eurigetes, the future queen of Egypt and wife of Ptolemy III Eurigetes. At one point, he moved from Kyrene to Alexandria seeking the employ of Ptolemy II, finding work at the library. One of his most important contributions here was the Pinakis, a bibliography written across 120 rolls of papyrus that catalogued the entire corpus of Greek literature that could be found in the library stores. It is believed that the vast majority of his work would have been composed during his time in the city, and he likely died sometime in the early years of Eurigetes' reign, in the early to mid-240s. The poem's literary output was said to be extraordinary, but relatively little has actually survived. The Byzantine encyclopedia known as the Suda suggests that he wrote over 800 papyrus rolls worth of material on a variety of subjects, in both poem and prose format. The diversity of styles and topics was also a personal point of pride for Callimachus. We possess six hymns, narrative compositions that were intended to honor an individual god. In Callimachus's case, they were dedicated to Zeus, Apollo, Artemis, Apollo again, Athena, and Demeter. A collection of epigrams attributed to the Chironean were gathered together over the centuries, roughly 60 in number that ranged from the comedic to the romantic. The most important work attributed to Callimachus was known as the Etia, a poem numbering four books and approximately 5,000 lines. As the name implies, the bulk of the poem is focused on presenting several etiological stories, narratives that serve as an explanation for why things are. A more modern comparison might be found in Rudyard Kipling's Just So Stories, or perhaps the digressions of Herodotus. But Callimachus draws upon allusions to earlier literature and mythology to bring these stories across Greek history to his own time in Alexandria, albeit in a somewhat discontinuous manner. There is also the Iambi, a book of 13 poems that followed a rhythmic pattern reminiscent of older archaic poetry. Last is the Hecale, a narrative epic of a smaller scale, known as Napileon, retelling the final days of the eponymous Hecale, an elderly Athenian woman who offered hospitality to the hero Theseus and died before he could return from his capture of the Cretan bull. These last three works are far from intact, and we often need to rely on later summaries to fill in the gaps to give context to the fragments. It is rather ironic that the hymns were so well preserved in contrast to the rest, considering how widely appreciated the Etia, Iambi, and Hecale were in the ancient world. Callimachus's reception certainly lasted into the early Middle Ages and beyond, though extant manuscripts disappear by the 13th century. Still, papyrological work being done in Egypt continues to turn up new fragments, and like with the plays of Menander, it may just be a matter of time before scholars stumble upon a more complete edition. As the most influential and important of the Hellenistic poets, what differentiated the work of Callimachus and his imitators from previous artists? One of the most important is Callimachus's frequent allusions to earlier Greek literature. This isn't to say that earlier authors didn't refer to the great works of the past. Homer and Hesiod served the same role as the Bible or Shakespeare do in modern English literature. It is the extent to which Callimachus draws upon older writings for inspiration that sets him apart, as is the breadth of the authors from which he draws upon. These references may be as simple as a similar phrasing of a passage or a pun, but they can also be as complex as a revival or imitation of an obscure literary style. The Etia may be considered as a continuation of Hesiod's Theogony, 
both in terms of its overall structure, a gradual movement from chaos to order, and the fact that it effectively starts where the latter ends. The Iambi is a direct evocation of the work of Hipponax, a poet of the 6th century who fell outside of mainstream appreciation by the Hellenistic period. Scholars have posed various ideas on how we ought to interpret the use of these literary references. The use of older or obscure authors as an inspiration certainly seems to suggest that this was never intended for a broader audience. As I mentioned earlier, Callimachus worked in the Library of Alexandria and compiled a massive bibliography of Greek literature, so his access to the works of authors both popular and obscure is easily explained. Perhaps it was only meant for the literati of the Museion. A cynic would perhaps describe it as pretentious erudition. On the other hand, Callimachus's playing with established literary themes and traditions can allow for a richer understanding of his work, and thus heighten the enjoyment of the listener. One of the most interesting features of Callimachus's work is his very blatant commentary on the nature of how poetry is written, or rather, how it ought to be written. The self-insertion of the author into a work is a distinguishing feature of literature during the Hellenistic period, and Callimachus is something of a trailblazer in this regard. He speaks up in many instances across his poems about his writing philosophy. This is best exemplified by the opening lines of Etia, which clearly communicates his process in a nutshell. Quote, Poet, feed the sacrificial animals so that it becomes as fat as possible. But, my dear fellow, keep the muse slender. End quote. In simplistic terms, Callimachus believes that quality always triumphs over quantity. He rejects the pattern of the traditional literary epic, which he felt had become bloated by those chasing after Homer's coattails. Precise word choice and clarity is the direction that poetry should move towards. Callimachus also does not shy away from expressing his opinion on what he deemed to be lesser works, and responds quite openly to his potential critics who may have viewed his restrained style to be inferior to the grand sweeping epic. In one famous paragraph of his second hymn, Callimachus uses the god Apollo as his mouthpiece. Quote, Envy spoke secretly into Phoebus's ear. I do not admire the singer who does not sing even as much as the sea. Phoebus pushed Envy off with his foot and spoke the following. The flow of the Assyrian river is vast, but it draws along much refuse from the land and much garbage on its waters. Not from any sources do bees carry water to Demeter, but from what comes up pure and undefiled from a holy fountain, a small drop, the choicest of waters. End quote. While the torrent from the Euphrates River is overwhelming in scale and noise, but leaves much to be desired in terms of its pollution, the more subdued babble of the fountain brings forth the clearest drink. Another counter-criticism can be found in Diambus 11, where he defends against naysayers who doubt his ability to compose in various styles, liking himself to a builder who isn't just limited to crafting one type of object. Another important change to recognize is Callimachus's shift in focus turning away from the grander tales of the past to instead bring it to a lower level. Homer and Hesiod wrote about the formation of the universe, wars between ancient nations, and the travels of heroes across the known world. In comparison, Callimachus restrained himself to dealing with stories that were smaller in scale. The Hecale is a good example of this. In the poem, Theseus's capture of the fearsome Cretan bull is treated as incidental whereas the real focus of the story is his relationship with the elderly peasant woman who played gracious host to a stranger. A parallel may be found in the works of the playwright Menander, 
who revolutionized the comedic genre by writing stories that feature everyday peoples and archetypes, or the contemporary Theocritus in his use of the idyllic countryside as the backdrop for his bucolic poems. Given Callimachus's status as the face of Alexandrian poetry, it is not difficult to imagine that his connection with the Ptolemies manifested in the poetry he produced. The choice to write about more contemporary events and persons is actually another important distinction of Kalamakian poetry. Most of the early members of the dynasty would have at least one work that directly or indirectly features them as a source of inspiration. This includes Ptolemy II, Arsinoe II, Ptolemy III, Berenike II, and even Magus of Kyrene, all featured to some capacity. In Hymn 4, the infant Apollo dissuades his laboring mother Leto from stopping at the island of Kos by prophesizing the future birth of Ptolemy II there, who was to perform a service for the god by taking revenge against the Galatians for their attack on Apollo's sanctuary at Delphi in 275. Quote, you should not give birth to me here, mother. I do not blame or grudge the island, seeing as it is rich and thriving in flocks, if any other is. But another god is destined to it from the fates, the lofty blood of the saviors, under whose diadem will come, not unwilling to be ruled by a Macedonian, both lands and the lands that dwell in the sea, as far as the ends of the earth, and where the swift horses carry the sun. He will have the character of his father, and now at some later time a common struggle will come to us, when against the Hellenes later-born titans raising up a barbarian dagger in Celtic war from the farthest west will rush, like snowflakes are equal in number to the stars, when they graze most closely together upon the ether. Other famous examples include The Lock of Berenike, a poem featured in the Etia that explained the origin of a new constellation by attributing it to the familial piety of Berenike towards her husband during the Third Syrian War. This sort of praise is not just limited to odes and celebrations of victory, but even in the poet's use of geography. Callimachus spends a great deal of focus on locations that were closely tied to the interests of the Ptolemies, most of them in Greece or on the islands of the Aegean and Ionian seas. The aforementioned fourth hymn took time to address the connection of the island of Kos to Ptolemy II, and other areas like Athens and Miletus also make appearances. Surprisingly, Egypt has very little presence in his works, but it may be presumed that he was attempting to cultivate a sense of Pan-Hellenism instead of relying on anything Egyptian. After all, the Greek inhabitants of Alexandria considered it to be a city that was near, or by Egypt, rather than being a city of Egypt. This geographic favoritism could also serve as a form of critique. The denigration of the Euphrates in the previously cited passage of the second hymn as a noisy polluted river was probably a slam against the literature being produced in the court of the Seleucid Empire, the chief rivals of the Ptolemaic dynasty. As such, Callimachus's work was widely respected and circulated throughout antiquity. Many later Roman authors paraphrase or directly cite his lines, ironically as a way to demonstrate their own erudition, but they tend to flatter his ability. It is possible that his poems had traveled as far as Afghanistan and Pakistan during the Indo-Greek period, based on a rare surviving epigram with a potential illusion upon it. In late antiquity and onwards, however, Callimachus seems to have fallen out of popularity in favor of Homer and other poets of the Archaic period. It is likely that surviving texts were available in the Eastern Roman Empire until the High Middle Ages, but they seem to have been reserved for specialist antiquarians, 
ultimately disappearing in the aftermath of the Latin conquest of Constantinople and mainland Greece. Though more famous for his pastoral works about the idyllic countryside, collectively known as the Bucolics, Theocritus of Syracuse was another Ptolemaic poet of the early 3rd century. As discussed in my last episode, Theocritus moved from Sicily to spend time in both Alexandria and Kos. Of his many idols, we know that 14, 15, and 17 are explicitly tied to the Ptolemies in some capacity. Idol 17 is perhaps the most famous non-bucolic poem, and is known as the Encomium of Ptolemy. This flattering speech gives a brief biographical history of Ptolemy II Philadelphus, and is roughly divided into several topics, a preface, an account of his father, Ptolemy I Soter, his mother, Berenike I, Philadelphus's own birth, a catalogue of the territory and peoples he ruled, his wealth and generosity, his marriage to Arsinoe, and a conclusion. An example of the passages are as follows, quote, There are numberless lands, peopled by numberless nations, who harvest their crops with generosity of Zeus's reign. But none is as fertile as low-lying Egypt, when the overflowing Nile saturates and crumbles its soil. Nor is any country so rich in towns of skilled inhabitants. Three hundred cities are established there. Add to these thirty-three thousand, and after that twice three and three times nine. And princely Ptolemy is ruler of them all. It continues. Indeed, the world's entire sea and land and all its roaring rivers acknowledge Ptolemy's sway. He is surrounded by troops of horsemen and shield-bearing soldiers, armed in gleaming bronze. In wealth he must outweigh all the kings of the world. So much flows each day into his sumptuous palace from every quarter. Traditionally, the Ptolemaic Empire has dominated discussions about Hellenistic poetry. They certainly were far more successful in promoting their image in the long term than their contemporaries, but the Seleucid dynasty was no less willing to bankroll artists to add glory to their own names. The entourage of Antiochus III from the late 3rd century to the early 2nd century is the most well-known of the family's history. Of the most important of these figures was a man named Euphorion a native of Chalkis on the island of Euboea. This rather elusive character seems to have started his career sometime in the early to mid-3rd century under the employ of an Antigonid offshoot named Alexander of Euboea, having earned the favoritism of the king's wife Nikea. But by the 230s to the 220s, he eventually made his way to the Seleucid court in Antioch. It was here he spent the rest of his career as head librarian of Antiochus III, before his ultimate death and burial in the capital or nearby Apamea. Of the individuals we will discuss in this episode, Euphorion's works were the least preserved. Over 200 papyrus fragments and quotations have been collected, but little in the way of actual substance has remained that easily communicates his style and form. As per the Suda, we know that he wrote books about Hesiod, miscellaneous tales related to Athens, and a catalog of oracles. An epic known as Thrax and other works feature curses as their main subject, and other cryptic stories of mythology. With regards to his Seleucid patrons, it is worthy to note that many of his fragments deal with subjects related to Asia, such as the Morians and the legendary Assyrian queen Semiramis. 
Scholars who have examined the fragments can trace Kalamakian influences, but ancient authors believed his work to be very challenging to read, given his predilection for obscure vocabulary and literary allusions. Based on his employment history and the emphasis on Eastern topics, it has been argued that Euphorion crafted a number of poems that were to be used as propaganda for Antiochus III. The king's exhaustive military campaigns to restore the borders of his empire would be well complemented by the publication of these texts, which could reinforce his ancestral claims. It is even possible that Euphorion was the author of the hypothetical Seleucus Romance, a biographical account of the dynasty's founder Seleucus I Nicator that weaved together exaggerated stories regarding the establishment and legitimacy of his kingship. A reference by the Roman writer Tertullian makes Euphorion the earliest attributable author tied to these dynastic traditions, which would also serve Antiochus's interests. The fixation on Seleucid geography does not appear to be accidental either, as we can find a parallel in the Ptolemaic-focused scenery in the work of Callimachus and Apollonius of Rhodes. It may be no coincidence that Euphorion does not refer to Egypt in any of the surviving fragments we possess. It appears that his works were well received by the Romans, having been translated into Latin in the 1st century BC and imitated by other writers. Both Virgil and Quintilian speak admirably of the poet, and Clement of Alexandria ranked him in the same tier of quality as Callimachus. Cicero, on the other hand, is not as positive, since his defense of the poet Ennius has him label critics as merely singers of Euphorion, which is probably less a direct attack on the poet than accusation of pretentious taste. With the Ptolemaic and Seleucid poets out of the way, we must now head to Greece and look to the Macedonian court of Pella, home to the Antigonid dynasty. Under their auspices, we find our final figure of renown, Aratus of Soli. Born in the Cilician city of the same name around the turn of the 4th century, he spent time in Athens under the tutelage of the Stoic philosopher Zeno, before being invited to the court of Antigonus II Gonatas by approximately 276. Like his contemporary Ptolemy Philadelphus, Gonatas was equally as interested in surrounding himself with learned men, and Aratus was to be a fixture until his eventual death. Of his catalogue, we have a mixture of works that would befit a court poet. Though neither survive, a hymn to Pan may have been composed in the king's honor, for we know that Gennatus minted coins bearing the god's image to celebrate his victory over the Celts, and an epigram was also devoted to Queen Phila. What differentiated Aratus was his apparent fascination with the natural world, as he wrote a number of poems based on outlining scientific principles of the time, known generally as didactic poetry. The purpose of a didactic poem is to provide knowledge for the reader to apply to real-world scenarios and situations, albeit with a degree of artistry. For example, The Works and Days is effectively a farming manual written by Hesiod for his rather lazy brother Perseus, and Hesiod would be the model for Aratus's own didactic poem. He composed verses on the pharmacological properties of plants and medicine, which has led one ancient account to argue that he was originally trained as a doctor, but we also find an interest in astronomy. The most important work in Aratus's catalog, and the only one to survive in its entirety, is known as the Phenomena, a poem that outlines the constellations and movement of celestial bodies. According to tradition, Antigonus Gonatas commissioned Aratus to turn the works of the 4th century mathematician and astronomer Eudoxus of Nidus into poem form. The end of the Phenomena is also focused on the weather, 
which is typically ascribed to a versification of Theophrastus's writings about the subject. A discussion about the actual science behind the phenomena must be saved for another episode. But Erastus seems to have done an excellent job at turning a rather dry subject into a work of lyrical beauty. Let us listen to a snippet of his work to get a better sense of what the rest of the poem is like. Quote, Between the two bears, in the likeness of a river, winds a great wonder, the dragon, writhing around in about enormous length. On either side of its coil the bears move, keeping clear of the dark blue ocean. It reaches over one of them with the tip of its tail, and intercepts the other with its coil. The tip of its tail ends level with the head of the bear, Heliki, and Kainosura keeps her head within its coil. The coil winds past her very head, goes as far as her foot, then turns back again and runs upwards. In the dragon's head there is not just a single star shining by itself, but two on the temples and two on the eyes, while one below them occupies the jaw point of the awesome monster. Its head is slanted and looks altogether as if it is inclined towards the tip of Heliki's tail. The mouth and the right temple are in a very straight line with the tip of the tail. The head of the dragon passes through the point where the end of settings and the start of risings blend with each other. End quote. Erotus's magnum opus was immensely popular, in part due to its use as a school text for students learning about astronomy. Even the critical Callimachus professed a deep admiration for the phenomena, acknowledging that Erotus's genius was on full display and an excellent imitation of Hesiod's earlier work. The literary impact of the Alexandrian and other court poets during the Hellenistic period had an immeasurable impact on the development of classical literature. Though much of the poetry produced has been lost to time, their works served as a direct inspiration of later Roman authors who took in their work with eager arms. The Caesars would copy the model of the Hellenistic kings and their cultivation of literary circles to aid in legitimizing their rule. Emperor Augustus possessed the greatest number of these, having under his belt the literary juggernauts of Virgil, Horace, and Ovid. These men would kickstart the golden age of Latin literature, citing predecessors like Callimachus or Aratus as the model of their own works. For now, let us conclude this episode, and in our next meeting we will discuss the last of the great Alexandrian poets and the story of the Argonautica.